Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Let's read our New Testament reading. This is Galatians chapter 1, uh, 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you so quickly are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So we're beginning a new series uh, on the book of Galatians, if you haven't guessed that already. And we'll do 14 weeks studying this epistle. And we'll do 10 on this side of Advent, and then four on the other side as we enter into the time of winter. So if you're here with uh, for the first time today, it's a great time to um, engage, and I hope that all of you will take advantage of this series. There's some resources that, we've, um, that I've given over email that I think would be helpful to read in parallel, and I hope you'll make use of that and use of these sermons. So as we get started, uh, let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would be with us. I pray that we would see you through this text. I pray that we would see your unbelievable gospel, the good news, that we would not only see it, but would receive it, would live out of it, that it would change the way that we do life, that it would change the way that we do business here as a church, that it would change the way that we think about the future, that it would give us hope not only for ourselves, but for our family, for our friends and neighbors, for even the world. Lord, we pray that you would go with us during this series and that you would enlighten us, help us to see things that maybe we've read before, that we've thought about before, maybe we've read this book or studied it before. Let us see things afresh. Would you give us uh, imaginations for what you might do through this study? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a number of years ago, the Chicago Bears football team made a series of videos that followed their rookies all the way through uh, the, the season. And it documented what it was like to be a rookie trying to make the team. And at the beginning of the series, the coach, then the coach, Lovey Smith, gives a speech to his rookie class. And of course, the thing that is most on their minds is whether they'll make the team. The rookies know that the roster begins at 80. 80 players come to camp, and then after a few weeks, the, the coaches begin to cut the roster down. And they cut it down to 65. And then before the season actually begins, all NFL teams are 
required to cut it down even further. And so of the 19 rookies who were invited to the Bears training camp, this was in 2010, the team would likely only keep seven. And so Lovey Smith addresses the rookie's concern, and he says, he tells them, make us put you on the team. In other words, play so well in practice that the coaches couldn't imagine cutting you. Take the decision out of our hands. Let your performance make the decision for us. Don't know if that was very comforting, but very inspiring, very challenging. Make us put you on the team. Doesn't, doesn't life feel like that sometimes? Certainly the workplace can feel like that. We have to apply for the job. We have to make the team. Then we have to perform well enough to stay on the team, to be valued. We want to take the decision out of our boss's hands by doing a good job. Maybe we feel like that as a son or daughter. We're trying to make the team as it were. We're part of the family, but somehow we feel just outside of our parents' approval. Or maybe it's a friend that we're trying to fit into a certain peer group. We want to get into that group, the cool group, and we want to make the team. We want to perform so well that they, they couldn't imagine not having us as a part of the team. Or maybe we're parents and we're trying to make the good parent club. And as you know, Jesus says that knowing the truth will set you free, but often life inside the church can feel decidedly unfree. We spend spend a great deal of time and effort trying to, to make the team and stay on the team. We feel like we're one bad performance review away from God just letting go of us and sending us away. And so churches are often filled with some of the most inhibited, the most defensive, the most obsessive, compulsive people that you can find. Well, I've got some really sensational news for you this morning. And in fact, the next 14 weeks are filled with good news. And I get the privilege for 14 weeks, with God's permission, to tell you over and over that God loves you madly. And he wants you to be free. You'll be hearing this from me. I get the privilege of saying it, but the Apostle Paul is going to be our guide, our teacher. And he really is the missionary of the liberated heart. He's traveled around Asia Minor telling people that they can be free, that God's grace is free for the taking. And the churches in Galatia readily accepted this preaching. There may be a number of them around this area, or there may be just a few, but these churches have readily accepted this good news that the heart can be liberated. And they gave themselves over to this new way of life where the story of Jesus takes up residence at the very center of their lives, and they begin to realize vast freedoms and surprising acceptance in ways that they had never imagined before. But we're picking up here because something has changed. Paul is writing a letter because something has come in, or more accurately, someone has come into these churches and are teaching them a different story. These teachers are often called the Judaizers because of the word, the root word in verse 214, and we'll deal with that when we get there. But these people weren't trying to convert the Christians in Galatia back to Judaism, They weren't trying to make them Jews. They were actually Jewish Christians. They were people who had also accepted the gospel. They were very well-intentioned and well-meaning. And 
as my experience in the church, is that oftentimes the most destructive people in the church are very well-meaning. They're very well-intentioned people. They're the yeah, but people. That's true, but. And the but is always something that sounds good, and it sounds God-honoring. In this case, these teachers weren't trying to overtly undermine Paul's teaching, the gospel that had taken root in Galatia. They were simply adding to it. Yes, that's true, but. Very well-meaning, very well-intentioned, but undermining subtly the gospel message. Yes, that's true, but. Yes, Jesus, but also circumcision. Yes, Jesus, but also certain eating habits. Yes, Jesus, but don't go too far with this idea that God welcomes any and everyone. Yes, Jesus, but don't go too far with this idea that everyone has equal standing before God. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, if you've studied this book at all, you may need to shake some cobwebs out of your head because we've sort of inherited an interpretation of the Scripture that is not entirely wrong, but needs to be tweaked a little bit, needs to be nuanced a little bit to understand what Paul is really saying and to actually be entirely free. There's a very common Protestant understanding of this passage, which finds its roots more or less in Martin Luther, that these people were threatening the gospel because they were saying that you couldn't be saved only through Jesus, but you had to have Jesus plus something else. It's not exactly true. A lot of more recent interpretations have pushed on this and argued that Luther was sort of reading his experience and dealing with some of the abuses that were present in the Roman Catholic Church in his day and reading that back into Galatians and trying to say that it's basically the same thing, that the selling of indulgences and the saying that you had to have these additional things in order to be saved was what these teachers were telling the Galatian church. And so what Paul is arguing against, more or less what Luther would say, is that he's arguing against the salvation by works. Now, the problem with this is that no faithful Jew in that time would argue that you can find salvation through a system of works. They knew that God had graciously interjected himself in their lives. What was going on was a little bit different and a a lot more tricky to nail down. What was happening, and we'll get to it more methodically and more directly in chapter 2, is that the Jewish Christians were coming in with this message of Jesus plus something, but it wasn't necessarily wholly about salvation. They were dividing the community, and that was the big thing in Paul's mind. That's what he sets up in chapter 2, is this this idea of divided tables, where there was the the cool kids' table and the not-so-cool kids' table. And that's what was happening by virtue of this new teaching. It was They were dividing the community, not based upon belief and unbelief, but belief and something else. So what they were saying is that those who were just merely Christians, merely saved, those who adopted the, were different than those who adopted the especially rigorous demands of the Jewish law, including circumcision, including things that you could eat and couldn't. These were the the badges of belonging. They were the symbols of the the religious elite, the people that were really serious. And say they weren't coming and saying, Galatians, you've got it all wrong. You're not even saved. What they were saying is, now that you're saved, here's what you need to do next. And they were very explicit and very direct about it. And if you weren't circumcised, 
then sorry, you can't sit at the cool table. Well, Paul is irate. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's astonished. And what he says here is they're not not actually deserting Paul. They're deserting Jesus himself. They've adopted a different gospel. And it's displacing the gospel that Paul instructed them. Now, think about it for a moment, how innocuous this teaching must have seemed to the Galatians. Paul had come in, he'd given them Jesus, and now these Jewish Christians who also agree on Jesus come and say, yes, but now here's what you need to do. After all, Christianity sprung up from the Jewish experience with God. And so following the law, being circumcised as a sign of belonging, all of these things would have sounded very innocuous. Why not do that? How easy would it would have been for these Jewish teachers to come in and say, yes, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are saved by him alone. But now that you're saved, here's what you need to do to really follow God, to really belong to the community. Not only does it seem innocuous, it actually seems downright honorable. I'm going to do even more. I'm going to really show my allegiance to Jesus. And all too normal, right? Because if we're honest, most of us don't really want grace. We don't want really just grace. We want grace plus a prescription. We want grace plus a system, plus boundaries, plus a concordance of good and bad behavior so we'll always know where we stand. The gospel, the the good news that Paul is teaching us doesn't give us a prescription, a formula, a to-do list. And so it feels ambiguous. It feels open-ended. It feels intangible and therefore a little bit unsafe. And so we begin to say, yeah, but, just like these teachers. We say it to ourselves, first of all, and we say it to people in our community, And that's why it's so serious, because it begins to divide divide the community based on things that aren't central to the gospel. We say, yeah, but, now that you're a Christian, yeah, but, you have to read your Bible and pray for this length of time every day. Now that you're a Christian, yeah, your kids are saved, but they must behave like my kids. Yeah, but, you must dislike the same people I dislike. Yeah, but you have to hold certain political convictions. Now, we're not saying the person is unsaved if they don't do those things, but somehow they don't fit in. Somehow this system of many tables begins to be set up in the church based upon certain decisions and certain behaviors and certain levels of seriousness about Christianity. And why do we do this? It's because we're well-intentioned. We're well-meaning We're not trying to overtly undermine anyone. We're doing this because it it feels safer. It gives us a, a level of control. It feels more predictable. It gets rid of the ambiguity that's inherent to the gospel. In the book I recommended to you over email, it's called Religious No More, and Mark Baker says, the world is a difficult place to live. The shifting sands under our feet do not offer us a secure place to stand. The storms of life batter us. Religions, clear guidelines, and packaged explanations remove doubt. 
and, re- and religion absorbs society's values much the same way as building thick pillars and heavy beams gives the building its solid appearance and hence an aura of security, clear religious definitions of who's in and who's out are walls that promise safety and comfort for those inside. These external walls which control the entrance to the building provide security of knowing that you're in. But they also produce graceless communities of conditional acceptance. The security in the building, the security that the building offers is an illusion because the thick pillars stand on weak and insubstantial foundations. Paul is saying to the Galatian church, don't you get it, Galatians? Don't you get it, brothers and sisters? Not only do these yeah, but rules divide the community, they also can't hold the weight of your hopes. They can't give you the confidence and the solidity that you so desperately want. And instinctively, almost immediately, don't we know that he's right? In our most honest moments, don't we know that he's right? The only good news that will make a difference in one's life is that the living God personally addresses you, that the living God personally forgives you and welcomes you into his family. That's the only good news that's going to make a lasting difference. These are things that Jesus sets right at the very center of who you are and who I am, not just around the edges. And you see, this isn't just a minor theological debate that Paul is engaging in. He is staging an intervention against a destructive heresy. Don't you know what you're giving up, Galatians? You've turned from grace back to law. You've turned from freedom back to slavery. Another gospel, as he calls it in verse 5. Eugene Peterson, who's a, a pastor, tells the story of Vince Lombardi, one of, the, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And he's dealing with a player who's cheating in practice. And he says, hey, Caffrey, if you cheat in practice, you will cheat in the game. And this is where most coaches would stop. But he goes on to say, and if you cheat in the game, you'll cheat for the rest of your life, and I will not have it. This is Paul's position He's coming in like Vince Lombardi because he is addressing lies that are going to take shape in people's lives. And he's saying, I will not have it. In fact, a lie about God is the worst kind of lie that you can tell. You see, it's wicked to tell someone that God is an angry tyrant parading in the sky just waiting to get a hold of you when you screw it up. It's wicked to tell someone that God is... On the contrary, a senile old man who doesn't really care about your life or what's going on in the world. And it's wicked to tell someone that God is a compulsive manager trying to squeeze as much productivity as he can out of his people. Paul is saying that it's wicked to tell a lie about God. It's wicked to say, yeah, but about grace. It's a perversion or more, act- more accurately, it's an inversion. It's turning the gospel upside down. Because what Paul has been telling 
the Galatian church is that true freedom comes when you understand God as the subject and you as the object. You don't go up, but He comes down. Grace rains down upon you. And if you're to live free, it'll be because of God's actions, not because of your own. It'll be because of His work on your behalf, not because of your dispositions, your purity, your intellectual gifts, or your political leanings. Paul lays lays this out in three sort of paradigmatic statements at the very beginning of this chapter, very beginning of the book. He says, Paul is made an apostle by God. Jesus is raised from the dead, and we are rescued from this present evil age. You see, something is done to us before we do anything. Something radically reshapes who we are in the very foundational places of who we are as a person before we do anything and offer anything to God. Freedom is a gift, in other words. He is telling the Galatians, you have been delivered. Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to Egypt. It seems fine because you were fed there. You had a place to live. Out in the desert, you feel unsafe. You feel out in the open. You feel threatened. And so you want to go back to Egypt, but in so doing, you're going back to slavery. Freedom is a gift. The gospel is deliverance. And this is what Paul means by the gospel, the good news. And it had set him free. You see, Paul had been told a lie about God. He wasn't always Paul. He was a long time ago Saul, and he was propagating lies about God. In fact, it was his mission in life to divide those who were in and those who were out with a sword. In his mind, God was against everyone who deviated from a certain path, and Paul was set loose on the church to destroy those he saw as dishonoring God's ways, as dishonoring the law. But then something happened. Then he met Jesus, and everything changed, because in Jesus, he learned that God was not against, but God was for, that he was not furious, but he was compassionate. He was not out to get sinners so that he could make them good and sorry, but he was out to get sinners so he could make them good and joyful. And in so learning this, he began to understand his own scriptures for the very first time. He began to have the Hebrew scriptures opened up to him to see that the gospel was there latent the whole time, and he had missed it. He began to read passages like Isaiah 40, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You who bring, what? Good news to Zion. Go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Paul began to understand what that good news really was, that it was gospel, that it was the free gift of salvation that God was offering to any and all who would take it. And the Galatians had taken it, and he's saying, don't give it back. Don't give back even a piece of it. Defend it. 
defend the fact that you were saved only by grace. Saul had followed a perversion of the gospel, which was in fact another gospel altogether. And what Jesus convinced him of and what he began to be a missionary of was that deviation or sin wasn't God's excuse to get rid of people. It was the occasion for him entering in to their story and setting them free. And this isn't mere theologizing. For Paul, it's a matter of life and death. I have a book book downstairs in my office called The Chris Farley Show. And it was written after he died. And it was reminiscent memories, there you go, (laughs) of things that people wanted to say about Chris. And one of them was uh, his priest, Father Tom Gannon. And he says of Chris, Chris didn't feel he was worthy of God's love. He felt that he had to prove himself. Well, you're never going to get very far in any relationship with that kind of belief. Imagine if you had to prove yourself to your spouse every single day. That's not the way that love works. In all of our talks, that was the one thing I really tried to work with him on, adjusting to this different idea of faith. But he never really moved from one to the other. It's hard. It takes a long time to come around to that way of thinking, and Chris just ran out of time. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who what? Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. This is what Paul is defending this, he is furious that people would come in and try to undermine that and upend it and invert it. And he is saying, no, Galatians, don't go back. You have real freedom. It's yeah without the but. Yes, you have grace evermore, unlimited. The Lord Jesus Christ has given himself for you so you are free. You don't have to make the team. You don't have to make them put you on the team or let them make them let you stay on the team. The gospel is that God's grace is broken into an otherwise hopeless situation, our world, our sin life, and changed everything. You've been rescued out of slavery and granted freedom, and that's territory to be defended at all cost. Nicholas Berdeyev is a Russian philosopher, and he says this interesting thing about being free. God has laid upon man the duty of being free, of safeguarding freedom of spirit, no matter how difficult that may be or how much sacrifice and suffering it may require. You see, friends, freedom is a serious thing. Freedom is something to be defended. We have that sort of in our American mythology, right, that freedom doesn't just exist in, a, in the abstract form but that at times it has to be defended. Sometimes we've gone about that in very wrong-headed ways. But the point is, is that freedom in the Christian life is not an abstract thing either. It is territory. It is territory that God marks out in your heart and in your soul, and He wants to defend that at all cost. And to invite Jesus into those places, to allow Him to bring freedom where we've been fearful or felt alone, is sacrificial. It's difficult to allow him to forgive us for our apathy, to open ourselves up to grace is scary. 
to actively safeguard the freedom of the Spirit, it takes receiving the gospel over and over and over until you die. You never get to the bottom of it. You never solve it. You have to always replant yourself or be replanted in the gospel over and over, remembering that God's grace isn't simply a kindly disposition, but rather grace is embodied in his powerful and costly action for the salvation of the world through Christ's self-giving action on the cross. And in that act, friends, he has made you his children. He has made you God's children and made you his brothers and sisters forever. Nothing else is needed. So live in his completed work. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we need this over and over. And wherever we're coming from this morning, maybe this is new news. And I pray that you would make it good. I pray that it wouldn't be threatening or sound depressive, but it would sound liberating to those ears that this is new to. And for all of us here this morning, even if we've been Christians for many, many years, that we would rethink again, that we would reimagine again what it would be like to live in your freedom that you so desperately want to give us. Give us freedom in our families, freedom in our schools, freedom in our workplaces, freedom as a church to be who you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.